Hello, everyone. Uh, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the second installment of the Philippines in Focus seminar series. And in this opportunity, we have uh, a very dear friend uh, of the uh, Philippines Australia Forum at La Trobe, um, PhD candidate, lecturer from Ateneo de Manila University, Gilbert Jacob Ke. Uh, Gilbert, it's a real pleasure to, to have you here. As you know, this is a seminar series. Um, in this, it's an initiative of the forum of Trobe Asia in uh, its objective to engage the public in meaningful discussion and to deepen our understanding of the knowledge of the Asian region and its manifold connections uh, with Australia uh, as well. Uh, I am Raul Sanchez Uribarri. I'm a senior lecturer in crime justice and legal studies here at La Trobe University. And I'm also the director of the Philippines Australia uh, Forum. Uh, before we begin this event, we'd also like to acknowledge uh, the Wurundjeri people as the traditional custodians of the land upon which La Trobe University in Bandura uh, sits. And we would also like to pay respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal Australians who are watching this session. Um, uh, once again, welcome everyone. In, in this occasion, we're gonna have first uh, a very uh, interesting uh, talk uh, given by uh, Gilbert in the next 40 minutes. And then we'll have about 20 minutes, uh, 15, 20 minutes, for um, Q&A, for any questions that you would like to ask. Uh, you are welcome, of course, to uh, write uh, your questions, submit your questions, or write them on the, on the chat box. And that way, we'll be able to address them towards the second part of the, of the presentation. Um, but of course, you're not here to listen to me. You're here to listen to Gilbert. And I'm very pleased to uh, give him the opportunity now to... Um, to chat. Uh, thank you so much, Kim. Welcome once again. Hello, everyone. Mabuhay and namaste. To all uh, the Indians who are probably listening today, um, I hope you had a very fantastic Diwali. Um, I think here in Melbourne, um, they are going to celebrate uh, this Saturday, I think, in Fed Square. Um, in Manila, they celebrated early in October, but the real Diwali season was just uh, this week. Now, my talk is entitled Space and Identity, Indian Diaspora in the Philippines. And what inspired me to do this uh, research is that, you know, I see a lot of Indians in the Philippines and I come from the Chinese community, by the way. So it's not hard for me to compare my experiences with their experiences. And uh, when we talk about the uh, like academe and migration studies in the Philippines, I noticed that there have been a lot of scholarship on the Chinese in the Philippines, but not so much about the Indians in the Philippines. And the Indians in the Philippines have been uh, well, the Indians have been migrating to the Philippines for more than 100 years, since uh, the 1890s until now. Actually, you can go back to even the 1700s when there was a small group of Indians or the Sepoys who came to the Philippines, but that did not start really uh, the succession of migration waves of Indians in the Philippines. That started in the 1890s, as I mentioned. Um, today, there are... Uh, 
Today, they are mostly Sindhis and Punjabis. So these are the two dominant ethno-linguistic groups, uh, Indian ethno-linguistic groups in the Philippines. Um, the other ethno-linguistic groups like are Bengalis or Gujaratis and so on, they also uh, exist in the Philippines. It's just that they arrive later on and they are mostly transients or the expatriate uh, the expatriate people in the Philippines. So currently, there are around 100 or more than 100,000 Indians in the Philippines. This number is not uh, very exact um, for two reasons. One, uh, you sometimes have the case of illegal migrants uh, in the Philippines. Um, so of course, we cannot uh, take account for those. Second is during the pandemic, there have been uh, lots of movement, uh, lots of movements uh during um, the past, what, two or three years. So even the Indian embassy could not give a very exact number of how many Indians there are in the Philippines because uh, there have been Indians who were just employed during the pandemic and a lot of Indians who decided to go back to India or go elsewhere um, because uh, employment uh, opportunities were not quite stable during the pandemic. Now, as compared to other countries, uh, especially neighboring countries of the Philippines, like, say, Malaysia or Singapore, uh, the Indians in the Philippines are a lot more scattered, and which is why there is also no prominent ethnic neighborhood or a little India. Um, however, I will explain a little bit about it later because some people might argue that, well, we sort of do have a little India in the Philippines, but probably not as big or as colorful as the ones in other countries. So my research asks, how do Indians create and express their identity in the Philippines? And my objectives are to understand how they are perceived by the Philippine society, to explore the ways that they navigate and belong in the Philippines, to determine the spaces that they use and what practices do they do in these spaces, and to explain how they communicate and perform their identities in the Philippines. Uh, I have a few theoretical influences, such as the production of space, the, theor uh, the theory of belonging, the exchanges of the forms of capital uh, by Bordeaux, and uh, to talk about how they sort of perform and how they uh, present themselves uh, to the society is Goffman's performance of self in everyday life. Um, I, anchored, uh, I anchored my research on belonging because I wanted to know how they fit in in the society, but I uh, am seeing, uh, I'm looking at it with a practice approach because I wanted to see um, what are the things that they do to uh, assert their existence in the Philippines, to, as, to, to let people know that they are there to stay. Um, I am also uh, using a spatial skill, which is based on the public and private spheres of Habermas. Um, and through this spatial scale, I have identified five particular uh, spaces, which are the home, the clan, community, association, and the political spaces. So this is just the diagram of those spaces. As you can see, uh, the circles are all anchored on the concept of belonging. However, the circles are, are in dots, you know, uh, they're not like solid lines because um, these spaces actually affect each other and they are not, uh, you know, the boundaries of these spaces are not totally exclusive from each other. So, for example, um, the things that happen in political spaces might affect uh, home spaces and vice versa. 
Okay. So for my research, I did uh, interviews in the Philippines. Uh, they were done online because um, it was during the height of the pandemic. Um, I, based, I based my research on grounded theory and narrative inquiry. So apart from the um, interviews with 41 Indians in the Philippines, uh, all of them are Indians, by the way, by citizenship or by descent, because some of them have, um, especially those who are uh, like old timers, they have already become uh, Filipino citizens. So apart from the interviews, I also did a participant uh, observation in several events. Uh, most of them are cultural events, um, but I guess I was also very fortunate to attend a private event and the uh, bride and the groom, Rohini Indev, who were also my participants, they allowed me to uh, observe their uh, wedding. So it was my first Hindu wedding in the Philippines, uh, although I, I, I had to participate online because it was also during the height of the pandemic. The others were also quite religious in nature, such as the um, Sunday worship service um, by the Filipino Indian uh, Fellowship. Okay, so how do Indians tell their story of why they are in the Philippines? Um, you know, a lot of people know that when we talk about migration, it is a very long journey in time and space. So uh, the history of Indians in the Philippines in most academic uh, works, they're normally stated in a matter of fact way, like they just enumerate the milestones of the community. Okay, the Indians came here during this year. Uh, this is when so-and-so temple was built, so-and-so association was formed. It's usually in that uh, mechanic robotic way. Um, however, when you get to talk to the Indians, when you get to know them more, they actually frame their stories in two, uh, two distinct genres. First is epic stories. And I think this is the more obvious one because, um, you know, they talk about their journey. So journeys are, uh, are often told in an epic manner because of all the conflicts, all the hardships that they had to go through, especially if they are first generation and more especially if they arrive in the Philippines, uh, let's say post-war, uh, post-war, uh, post-World War II, rather. The second one is the one that surprised me more, which is romantic stories. Now, when we say romantic stories, these are not uh, love stories. Um, sometimes they can be like love stories as in like a man and a woman, and then they get married and happily ever after. You know, um, that's not necessarily what a romantic story is, but romantic stories generally can um, highlight various emotions such as gratitude, which uh, is the most uh, apparent uh, of those emotions that uh, I heard among the stories. Um, in, in the case of the Indians, it's uh, gratitude towards the Filipinos, gratitude towards the Philippines for allowing them to stay in the country and what they are doing to give back to the Philippines. So, for example, outreach, um, making friends with Filipinos, introducing their culture to Filipinos or learning the culture of the Filipinos and so on. Okay. So at home, which is the most intimate of these spaces, they interact mainly, uh, of course, in their own houses, in their places of residence. Um, they exchange forms of capital, mostly the cultural capital, in the objecti uh, objectified and embodied um, states. Objectified, which would be the material artifacts, um, and embodied, which would be the practices, the rituals, 
um, that they do and how they pass it on to the younger generation. They usually um, do this in the prayer area of their houses. They usually have little temples depending on um, what their religion is. So it could be a Hindu altar, a Sikh altar, or even a Catholic or Christian one. And in many cases, it's a mix of many, many religions as well, because um, Indians are actually very spiritual people, and they actually respect um, a lot of religions, even though, you know, they're they're probably not um, devoted to that particular religion. Uh, They also do this in kitchens um, when it comes to their food. Um, They also need to learn the Indian language. Um, They also have certain gendered Uh, gender roles that they have to follow as dictated by tradition. They belong based on attachments and mutualities such as blood and marital relations or um, attachments to India and which is why they have to sort of recreate an image of India in their own houses to feel safe and to feel literally quote-unquote at home. Uh, They like communicating face-to-face at home. I think that's the most practical way of communicating at home. Um, And their goal in communication is to achieve idealization. So in uh, performance studies, or at least in the performance of self by Goffman, idealization is literally being the best form, uh, the the best version of yourself um, in order for you to give the best performance, so to speak. In this case, it's like when you discipline your kids um, or when you learn uh, the norms of society. So when you go out in society, when you perform uh, your identity, when you perform cultures, you will not uh, be embarrassed or you will not be ashamed or you will not give your family shame. Okay, so for example, Stevie, who is a Punjabi, he said, home is where I am comf- comfortable and where I can be myself. So I can be here in the Philippines and be comfortable, go to India, any particular place where I can be myself and I'm home, then I'm home as well. So um, a lot of Indians, uh, they're not actually quite sure where home really is. So they tend to uh, conceptualize home in a rather abstract state. Um, However, um, practically speaking, they prefer to stay in Metro Manila uh, as compared to other provinces, at least in the Philippines, because of the presence of their kin or relatives they have more access to career or academic opportunities or more access to the Indian community because a majority of the Indians are located in Metro Manila or even in Mega Manila, um, which is, uh, you know, uh, including the out, uh, outskirt cities in the other regions um, that are very, very close to Manila. And their lives are actually quite tied to Metro Manila as well, since we have people commuting between these places every day for work or for study. Um, houses are homes rather are often nuclear. Sometimes they are split because uh, they tend to move. <clears throat> excuse me, they tend to move around a lot as well. Now, in home spaces in the Philippines, there are also some non-Indians um, who are often spouses. Example: they married to Filipinos or Filipinas, or to employees like house helpers and uh, drivers. Um, uh, You also have similarities to how homes are produced in other countries uh, like uh, like the United States. Um, Just that um, compared to how Indians create home spaces, um, they don't usually have the luxury of space in the Philippines because um, it's quite congested, especially if you're in Metro Manila. 
Okay, so this is this is an example of how an Indian one of my Indian participants uh, decorated her home during Diwali uh, last year or last last year. Um, so as you can see in uh, on the left side, that is their prayer space, um, and they decorated uh, the prayer space with plenty of flowers, lights, and food offerings on the table. Uh, that is what they had. Um, with more lights as well. And um, if you're not familiar, the shape that the lights form is what we call the dia or the uh, lamp that they use during Diwali. Okay, so what about clan spaces? So clan spaces are repetitions of many households because, um, you know, you live in a particular home, your relatives also live in their own homes. However, they get to, you know, these people get together every so often. They interact um, to celebrate milestones usually. And these, uh, they usually meet in places that are deemed special, quote unquote. So special can mean different things to many different people. Um, sometimes it's more sentimental, like special places such as a particular tourist, uh, tourist or vacation spot in someone's house. Usually this is the house of a patriarch or matriarch or in other event places. Um, they often exchange the cultural capital which is embodied because um, they often like to uh, pass on certain traditions uh, whether or not the material culture is uh, available or not. So for example, performing rituals in clan events like weddings or funerals, sometimes certain objects are not available in the Philippines, so they have to make do with what they have or what they do not have, which is why the embodied state of the cultural capital is more important. They belong based on mutualities. Mutualities would be the uh, acknowledgement of the affiliations that are present in um, in a particular community or group of people. So in this case, blood and marital relations also, like in the family or home space, uh, you also have practices surrounding uh, a patriarch or matriarch figure. And they communicate usually face-to-face -face also, and they wish to achieve team performance. Also for idealization, because um, if someone does something wrong, it is bringing shame to the family and to the clan. Now, for example, uh, Vasanti, uh, who is a local Cindy, she said, we do Diwali at home, and in my cousin's family's home, we will visit each other's houses and do pujas, uh, the, the prayers, in everybody's house. The night ends with everyone having dinner at our house because our grandfather used to stay with us. So their grandfather passed away many years before the interview. Um, but because, uh, you know, their uh, her family and their relatives would... Uh, acknowledge that the grandfather used to live there, um, the house of Vasanti or the home of Vasanti would sort of be like the main headquarters of the clan in Metro Manila. So apart from religious festivals, you have weddings fun and funerals as the two biggest events observed by the clan. Um, and during these events, they always would need the help of Filipino and Indian service providers to assist. Um, it could be uh, services related to makeup, to food, to decorations, to transportation, and so on. Now, um, in clan spaces, norms are, according to the literature, they're normally supposed to be based on caste, um, because as you may know, the caste system is sort of prevalent in Indian society. However, in the Philippines, caste is not as followed or acknowledged as compared to other um you know, uh, Indian diaspora communities. For them, class matters more 
especially in choosing a spouse and class as you may uh, as you might know is uh, strongly connected to the eco uh, economic capital um you know uh, they could choose a spouse for example maybe from the philippines or abroad and they're often arranged but sometimes not anymore or half arranged half arranged is like okay um this is a boy or this is a girl that we feel is fit for you you get to know each other and you know during the getting to know each other stage they probably form an emotional connection and um they get married so uh in clan spaces in the philippines they're quite similar to funeral rituals in saint lucia or wedding rituals in the usa um, however, in the Philippines, some adjustments have to be made, especially during the pandemic. For example, holding a wedding online. Okay, so for example, this is a Sikh wedding in uh, the Marikina Sikh temple uh, by one of my participants. I, I had to blur the faces because of uh, privacy matters, um, of course. So um, this participant in particular had two weddings because her husband was Filipino. So they had a Sikh wedding in the morning and a Western style or Filipino style wedding in the afternoon. Okay, so what about for the community? So this is the most complicated uh, part of my research because the richness of my data um, comes mainly from this particular space. So um, within the Indian community, they would have... Uh, they would interact with each other to gain access to necessities, such as stores to get Indian goods or places of worship to perform you know, prayers or rituals. Um, they exchange uh, capitals in these ways. One, they grow social capital, so they get to know other people in the community. They share their cultural capital amongst each other, and they gain economic capital based on the economic transactions that they might have um, with each other. So, for example, trading of Indian goods or teaching culture in organized classes like spiritual classes or cultural classes um, in the Philippines. They belong mainly based on their uh, commonalities, like temporal commonality, when did they arrive in the Philippines, class, uh, like economic class commonalities, ethno-linguistic uh, commonalities, and occupational uh, commonalities. So, actually, a lot of the ethno-linguistic um, divisions are actually based on the occupational or class commonalities. Okay, they also um, communicate, they, well, the community is big, you know, and scattered, as I mentioned, but they still highly prefer to communicate face-to-face, -face, um, or at the very least, they have to uh, make make do with digital media, because that is um, what they what they could use to um, have a farther reach in the community. And um, they mainly communicate with each other, apart from personal reasons, is to um, do negotiations to provide, uh, to provide services. And uh, one of the most annoying things, according to some of my participants, is surveillance. Um, it's because the Indian community, while scattered and while they are quite big in number, um, they sort of like to see what each one is up to so they could sort of compare if one is misbehaving because the action of one represents the whole. Some of them think that way and the younger generation often dislikes that idea. So um, they communicate, for example, when they're buying from the stores or teaching culture or again, when they're gossiping with each other. Again, it's something that some of my participants don't really like. 
Okay. So according to Mukesh, who was a Gujarati expatriate, he recalled when he, when he just came to the Philippines more than a decade ago, he said, I didn't want to talk to the Sindhis at the temple so much because there might not be too much to talk about. Or maybe I won't get along with them. They've been here a very long time. So um, the oldest Hindu temple in the Philippines is dominated by the Sindhis because Sindhi, the Sindhis in the Philippines are mostly Hindu uh, Hindu Sindhis. And Mukesh was a Hindu. He wanted to get to know more people, but he felt a little bit uncomfortable when he realized that um, he probably wouldn't fit in because most of the people in the temple are Sindhis and he does not share the same history with them, the same language or the same culture. Although he did say that everyone was friendly and welcoming towards him. So he didn't have any bad blood uh, of sorts. So as I mentioned in the Philippines, uh, we have the Sindhis and the Punjabis and the expatriates, but these three uh, are actually... Uh, based on, I mean, the, the divisions are based on economic and occupational divide. So the Sindhis are usually described as business people. The Punjabis, although some, uh, well, some are doing, you know, business as well, but majority of them, or at least according to the Filipinos, they're mostly known as money lenders. So they go around with their motorcycles and they do informal money lending in small a small community. So you will see a photo later. And the expatriates who are in the Philippines, usually for a short time, um, but sometimes they do get their contracts renewed, so they stay a lot longer. So some expatriates could stay in the Philippines for decades. So the temporal divides, you also have the old-timer and the newcomer. The old-timers are, are usually the Sindhis and the Punjabis. These are the people who are multi-generational, and the newcomers who are the expatriates, since they don't always stay very long in the Philippines, um, they don't, uh, they're not often multi-generational. At the very least, you have at least the second generation because probably they have young kids um, with them in their homes in the Philippines, and they're probably studying in the Philippines while the parents are working. Uh, they belong to each other due to common religious and economic practices. These are the main commonalities that I saw. Um, and, they and they rely a lot on word of mouth for communication. So word of mouth here is in quotations because th uh, this is not literal word of mouth, um, but they describe word of mouth as getting information from someone they trust. So even if it's digital or through SMS, that is still considered word of mouth for them. So you have similarities with the Indians uh, in Japan because in Japan, the Indian community is a little bit strange as well. Strange in the sense that um, they've been there, some of the Indians there have been have been around for almost a hundred years, but at the same time, they don't, or they haven't formed a very strong and a very vibrant and a very um, dominant diaspora community. So in the Philippines, I think that's almost the same situation with the Indians. Now, um, as I mentioned, we don't have an Indian like a little India in the Philippines, but the earliest Indian enclave in the Philippines is in Paco, Manila, which is uh, near the port because um, the Indians would arrive to the Philippines via maritime travel, via ships, um, which is why the earliest community was in that district in Manila. And even today, you have the oldest Hindu and Sikh temples, which you see here on, uh, in the slide. Um, but as the economic centers in Manila spread out, so from the from Chinatown, for example, which is one of the 
uh, earliest economic centers in downtown Manila um, because, you know, um, and, and Escolta as well. But because Manila became congested, most of the economic centers moved out to Cubao, to Makati, some even moved to the provinces. And as the economic centers moved, the Indians moved as well. But these temples stayed in, in that district and um, the Indians would still, you know, sometimes weekly or sometimes even every day, they would go to these temples and pray. Okay, so here you see an Indian restaurant in Makati. So just like home spaces, they try to recreate a feel of their country in these establishments. So for example, um, this restaurant is owned by a Sindhi participant, um, but they come from Gujarat. So that's where their family is from. So he said that when his parents would go back to Gujarat every so often for holiday, they would buy, you know, these little souvenirs like statues or paintings, and they would bring them back to the Philippines and decorate their restaurant as a way to replicate what they know of their hometown back in India. And here you have an Indian community celebration um, in one of the biggest malls in the Philippines, as a Mall of Asia, which is near Manila Bay. Um, although these events are uh, organized by associations, um, they are done for the community, for the community to unite and mingle with each other. So this one, I, I personally took a photo of this many, many years back. And this year, they, they went back to Mall of Asia uh, and they resumed their face-to-face -face Diwali festival because they could not do that during the pandemic. Okay, so the other side of community spaces is community spaces with Filipinos. And with Filipinos, they interact in <clears throat> places used in everyday life like schools, office, or any workplace, or in the markets. Um, they gain social capital when interacting or exchanging forms of capitals with the Filipino because they also need to get um, local friends or local contacts so they would know how to navigate their way around the uh, culture and the system in the Philippines. They share their cultural capital as well for cultural understanding and they gain economic capital. Just like the Indians, they need to do transactions. Uh, they need to buy and sell things to each other um, so they can assert their place in the society. Um, one particular way that they gain economic capital um, is through money lending. And that is actually the basis of the Indian, uh, that is the basis of the stereotype of Filipinos, uh, that the Filipinos have of Indians, because most Filipinos, especially from the lower classes, they often see the money lending Indians, not the big, uh, not the big businessmen, Indian businessmen in the Philippines. Um, they belong with each other based on mutualities in the sense that they recognize each other as peers despite differences uh, such as uh, physical differences or cultural differences. They communicate with each other based on face-to-face -face communication and also digital communication. But um, for the Indians, one of their experiences or one of the highlights in communicating with Filipinos all their life is they need to communicate with Filipinos to break the stereotypes because they don't like it when they are called Bombay, which is a uh, derogatory term for, Filip uh, for Indians that the Filipinos use. Bombay here is based on Bombay, the old name of Mumbai. Um, although originally it did not have a bad connotation, but the term Bombay was eventually connected with the 5-6 stereotype. 
And 5-6 is what Filipinos would call the money lending uh, Punjabis. Okay, so Chameli, for example, who is a Cindy, and she works as a banker. Excuse me. So she, she works as a banker, and she recalled one time uh, in her workplace, her co-worker said, Ay, may bumbay pala rito. So um, in, Philipp- uh, in English, that means, oh, there is a bumbay here. And normally when this statement is said, it's not always in the best way. Um, often there is this othering uh, being uh, done. And so Indians don't usually feel very good when uh, statements like this are being said towards them. So um, they said that Filipinos often isolate them or or don't like them to join um, you know, groups of friends or whatever because of their physical difference. Um, despite commonalities with Filipinos, like um, a lot of them are very fluent in the Filipino language because they were, they were born and raised in the Philippines. But just because their physical appearance is not the same, sometimes it's not even the culture because some Indians are very much used to the Filipino culture. But they say that the first thing that the Filipinos see is the physical difference. And a lot of times, uh, Filipinos use Indians to scare children like Um, you know, if you don't behave, this Bombay will kidnap you or something. And which is why uh, many Indians don't really have a good experience in the Philippines. Um, that is when they, they're usually um, studying or when they're born and raised in the Philippines. Um, since the Indians are very much scattered, they're usually the only Indians in their school or class or workplace, unless it's, let's say, an international school. But um, for the Indians who had to study in local schools, they're normally the only Indians in their school um, or, or class, um, which is why it, it's harder for them to communicate their culture because they're the only, they're the only person there with a different culture. Um, as I mentioned, stereotypes due to economic practices like the Bombay or 5-6 stereotype, I'll show you photos later so you will understand. Um, and because of these, there are some similarities with experiences of Indians in South Africa because as you might know, Um, the Indians did not have a very good history, in uh, early history in South Africa, um, eventually in the UAE as well, um, because some Indians are um, not very respected, especially if they are taking on like low, uh, lower class work um, in, in the UAE. Okay, so this is a photo. This is not my participant, by the way, but this is a photo that I got from Google of a typical Punjabi moneylender. So I'm specifying Punjabi because that is the stereotype. But I'm not saying that all Punjabis are engaging in money lending or that all moneylenders are Punjabi. But the usual thing that people see is that the moneylenders are Punjabi with their turbans and their motorcycles. And they're always on motorcycles because that is the one, it is easier to get motorcycles in the Philippines, especially if you're not a citizen. Um, second is... Um, it is easier to go around the smaller areas in or smaller communities in the Philippines if you have a motorcycle. So it's easier to literally navigate or move around the Philippines. Um, now, these Punjabi moneylenders are, well, one, Filipinos like them because they um, some Filipinos don't have bank accounts. So it's easier to borrow money from these people. But on the other hand, they are also the butt of jokes of Filipinos. So it's... And uh, not a very pleasant experience um, if you sum it up. Now, um, 
this is this photo is of a person called DJ Bombay um and DJ Bombay is a fictional character created by a gag show and this is this character is presented in a rap music video about the Bombay stereotype so um the character raps about how the Bombay uh does money lending or sells umbrellas and every stereotype that you you would come across with indians um although this was made in in uh you know not to harm anyone but uh indians generally did not like it when they saw this video because this was just a reinformation uh re what do you call this reinforcement of that stereotype and it sort of gives the uh, idea that it's okay to make fun of people Um, so, yeah. Okay. Now for association spaces. So associations are sort of like the extension of the community in a more formal uh, way because they form, you know, more um, organized groups that they have to register in the Philippine government. Um, they interact with each other based on the concept concepts of backstage and front stage uh, venues. Um, because you, for example, have offices or digital digital platforms um, as the backstage, and you have event uh, events or events venues and malls as the front stage where they perform, literally perform cultures and things like that. Um, in association spaces, they they like to maximize the social capital to form more formal connections with with each other, with Filipinos or Indians, and to gain and share economic capital. Gaining economic capital because, yes, you need funds to do activities, but sharing economic capital because it's usually these associations that um, give back to the Philippine society or even uh, within the Indian society through, say, uh, donations during um, natural calamities or even during the pandemic, the Indians gave a lot of medicine and face masks to the Filipinos and all of that. And they said that it's one of their ways of you know, giving thanks. Um, you also get some funds from member recruitment. Um, and as I said, collection and distribution of donations. They belong to each other based on commonalities through having the same interests and goals and mutualities because, you know, they had they always have to um, acknowledge the hierarchies that are present within the associations. They communicate with each other based on, as usual, face and face, face-to-face and digital, but their goal this time is for team performance Because you know associations are made of teams, um, and their performance of culture. What is the kind of Indian that they want to show to the Filipinos in a formal setting, and uh, how do they change what the Filipinos know about Indians? And they do this through uh, formal collaborations with other organizations in the Indian community and with um, Filipino associations, and uh, they like to organize. events for the Indian community, just like the photo that I showed you a while ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. For example, Regine, who is from the Federation of Indian Chamber of Commerce, she said, the Cindy's decided to come up with an association that will bring in the concerns of the Indian businessmen in the Philippines in making sure that we help each other out and contribute and give back to the Philippines. Again, that's the romantic genre, um, which has been welcoming of the Indians. So these associations are mostly in Metro Manila. So as you can see, you can see the dominance of Metro Manila because that is where everything is happening. Uh, membership usually relies on proximity. So you could tell that most of these associations um, 
sorry, in these associations, most of their members come from Metro Manila. Although they welcome members outside Metro Manila, um, they don't come as often because of proximity. Um, you also have gender differences in the, uh, uh, that are apparent in the associations. And it is these gender uh, differences in gender roles that gave rise to the kinds of associations that we have today. For example, the business associations are dominated by men and you have all sorts of ladies associations that are there for the cultural events. But eventually you have one Indian, associ one Indian ladies association for entrepreneurship and uh, business as well. Um, so that is the very, very new Indian Women in Enterprise uh, Association in the Philippines. Um, the associations are dominated by Sindhis and expatriates because Punjabis don't always prefer to participate because one, um, they tend to not be very united um, because there are plenty of internal tensions with um, in the Indian, sorry, in the Punjabi community in the Philippines. Second, it's because um, some of them are not uh, eligible to join some of the associations. For example, um, a lot of Punjabis um, who are engaging in money lending, they don't have legitimate businesses. And because they don't have businesses, they cannot join a business association. So sometimes it's uh, those practical reasons. Um, all these associations, regardless if they're business associations, cultural associations, and so on, they're all charitable in nature. Uh, and they are all supported by the embassy. However, unlike in other countries, the charity uh, projects that they are doing um, is mainly for the benefit of the Filipinos because most of the Indians in the Philippines are more um, involved in local matters rather than matters in India. But that does not mean that the Indians in the Philippines are disconnected from India. Actually, they're very much connected. They often go back to India to visit family and friends or for tourism. Um, it's just that most of their formal projects are um, located in the Philippines or for the benefit of the Philippine society. Um, those who don't join associations feel that they can connect with, in, with the Indian community on their own anyway. So um, some of those who felt that uh, they, they are not part of associations, well, it's okay for them. Um, actually, half of my participants are not part of these formal associations, but they are still very much connected with the Indian community and with India and with the Philippines. Okay, so this is a photo I got from the website of the Federation of Indian Chambers of Commerce. Um, this is one of the early um, oath-taking ceremonies of the board members of the FICCI. You will notice that all of them are wearing the Barong Tagalog, which is the um, national male national costume of the Philippines. And this is their way of asserting that, yes, we are Indians, but we are also in the service of the Filipinos. And some of them who are in the Philippines as Filipino citizens, they are as Filipino as they are Indian. So they, uh, they showed this also during the 75th anniversary celebration of the association. Now, for political spaces, uh, this one is also very tricky because this, uh, this space um, talks a lot about uh, belonging in base, based on citizenship. Um, so what is their citizenship or what rights do they have? So they interact based on diplomatic spaces, 
although I know that all spaces are political because everything is political, but in, in the sense of diplomacy, um, some examples would include the House of the Ambassador, the Indian Embassy, some function halls or temples in the provinces. They, um, they also try to maximize their social capital, and they also gain and share economic capital, such as um, partnership uh, partnerships with the diaspora or sharing economic opportunities with the diaspora. They belong to each other based on attachments to their citizenship or whatever political categories they might have, such as NRI or PIO. NRI would mean that you are an Indian, but you're not residing, so non-resident Indian. PIO is you probably now have a different citizenship, but you are a person of Indian origin, PIO. They communicate with each other, yes, face-to-face if needed, but uh, there is a lot more reliance on digital information because they need to spread information to a lot more people this time. Um, And their main goal is to relay information. They connect uh, with the diaspora for government programs in person or via social media. So for example, Kavita, who is part of the Embassy of India. Um, again, this is uh, the names that you see here are all nicknames um, for, their, for the privacy of my uh, participants. So Kavita, who is with the Embassy of India, um, said that the government of India believes that the diaspora is, is um, an extended part of the family, uh, the Indian family, so to speak. The government recognizes that and is letting the diaspora know about this through, mainly through online means. However, for the Indians, um, they actually are not sure where they belong politically. Are they Indians? Are they Filipinos? Where do they need to position themselves? And they're actually not sure, And which is why a lot of them describe themselves as global citizens, this, regardless of their citizenship, because of their history of moving here and there, especially for the Sindhis. Um, there's a significance also of the politician state visits in the Philippines and connecting with the diaspora. So this reinforces that extended part of the family. Um, however, uh, the participants also said that <clears throat> political and diplomatic events are normally dominated by businessmen. So um, as you can tell, uh, diplomacy is still very much tied to the economic capital. And consular services uh, reach provinces because we don't have a consulate, Indian consulate in the Philippines, we only have one Indian embassy. So in order to reach the farther islands in the Philippines or the farther provinces, uh, they need uh, to form consular camps every so often with the help of the Indian temples, Hindu or Sikh temples in the provinces, because those are the, um, what do you call that? Those are the main Indian landmarks that you have Um outside Metro Manila. So here you see a photo. You can see a photo of the facade of the Embassy of India in the Philippines uh, through the website of the Ministry of External Affairs. Now, what can we say about belonging and uh, and diasporic in the diaspora context. First, practices mainly are geared towards economic gain because that is their reason for migration and that also forms their idea of permanency. Second, belonging relies on temporal and economic commonalities, as I mentioned. Economic capital facilitates attachments to places and, again, their concept of permanency, uh, why they are staying mainly in urban places, even in other countries. You see that most diaspora groups stay in urban centers or why they migrate or move to another city. All of these are usually related to economic capital. Um, Cultural divides can also have economic roots, like the differences between the Sindhis and the Punjabis, apart from cultural differences. 
Um, and you can also see how communication challenges the physicality of belonging, that you can also belong to a particular group, even though you're not there, just by maintaining relationships through communication. And that is how spaces are maintained um, apart from having physical places. Now, to conclude, how do Indians create and express their identity in the Philippines? They do that through interactions with fellow Indians and Filipinos and through Indians elsewhere and through Indian media. They express their identity through creating spaces that connect them to India. How they perceived by the Philippine society? Um, they are perceived as one, economic, economically superior, but culturally inferior. So this is Oh, very intriguing for me. The latter perception, however, is changing because more Filipinos are uh, becoming more informed or exposed to not just the Indian culture, but the cultures of the world through mass media. Um, how do Indians navigate and belong in the Philippines? They do this based on attachments to family and kin, ties, and economic opportunities. And they belong in the Philippines based on their economic contributions. What are the spaces that they use um, and what are the practices done in these spaces, um, they use a, a whole bunch of spaces from homes to function halls as multi-purpose venues. They also go to places of worship for religious practices or to visit Indian stores to access everyday necessities. And these places are used to create and maintain cultural and, and economic ties with each other. So how do they uh, communicate and perform their identities in the country. They do this through the use and interaction with material artifacts from private to public spaces, and they communicate their identities um, in the Philippines by rejecting stereotypes and educating each other um, about what their identity is. So uh, that concludes my very packed research about uh, space and identity, Indian diaspora in the Philippines. And I would appreciate any question uh, that you might have to help um, improve my research as well. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Gilbert. I mean, that's been fantastic. And well, first of all, kudos to you. This is uh, a fantastic survey, excellent, compelling, comprehensive survey of a very important topic that at the same time is really hard to investigate. I mean, as you as you mentioned in your presentation, uh, it's a topic with many different aspects to cover. Uh, it's a population that, as you as you mentioned, has been understudied in the Filipino uh, context, and that in the context of, of Asian more broadly is becoming increasingly important. So, well, first of all, kudos to you, well done. Um, and before we start, I have. Um, um, Jan Wenceslao from uh, Jan Sherwin Wenceslao from the uh, Filipino consulate in Melbourne, who would like to say uh, a few words. And Jan, if you if you may, I don't know if we have the opportunity to to include you in this in Zoom or just bear with me a minute while I give um, them permission to talk. Uh, not a problem, Diane. And in the meantime, I'll encourage you all to um, to ask your questions to Gilbert. We already have a couple of questions. And Gilbert, I wrote down a number of uh, notes and comments for you, um, at, again, to um, help you uh, think different aspects about, about your uh, research. And and it's Maria. Is the, is the, Maria, is the, she can talk now. Yeah. Uh, good, good uh, Maria, please. Yes. <laughs> Uh, welcome. Good afternoon, everyone. 
uh, I know it registered as Jan Wenceslao, but uh, yeah, she passed on the, the link to me. But uh, firstly, uh, thank you so much to Latrobe uh, for the second uh, of the uh, series that you have for the Philippine Studies Program. And lovely to see you again, Gilbert. We, Hello, uh, <laughs> Nice to see you, Paul. Our, our paths in in one uh, Indian event, right? Yes, yes, yes. We saw each other during the um, Indian festival. Yes, in Thornbury oh. Theater. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see, when I first uh, got this uh, message from Latrobe, so I would say, why the same question right, that you posed at the beginning? Why, uh, why Indian? Why talk about Indian Indian diaspora in the Philippines? Because they they not really a big. Uh, a group of people like the Chinese uh, do. But, uh, you know, looking back at the, you know, lessons from the past, we know that uh, there, even before the Western came to the Philippines, there have been lots of uh, influence from, uh, from India. And uh, in fact, uh, you know, someone had said that you have many Filipino words that have Sanskrit influence. And one, uh, one uh, study says 25% of vocabulary in Tagalog and other languages in the Philippines have either the same Sanskrit or have similar, you know, like uh, Bathala, which is great Lord, you know, Mukha, which is face, Tala, uh, star, and so on and so forth. And uh, we know that uh, we, we uh, for instance, the famous Sinkil, um, uh, folk dance, you know, it, it derives, uh, it is derived from the great Ramayana epic, uh, which is great influence in the entire of Southeast Asia. And in fact, it, during the 35th ASEAN summit, the opening ceremony, uh, they, they dance something uh, which is derived from Ramayana, Rama. Ramahari or something like that. So uh, I was just wondering, uh, Gilbert, whether you also look into uh, uh, Filipino researchers or scholars who looked at uh, these topics. In the past, uh, I came across Juan Francisco, uh, who has written four articles on this matter. And there's also one, um, Josephine Acosta Pascrit. Richa, maybe married to an Indian yes, uh, yeah. who taught in USD and the La Salle University. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I was looking at also at your, your uh, what do you call that, the spheres, no? In the beginning, I said, Bakit kaya, how come there's no economic there or something about business? Because we, we know that the Indians went to the Philippines because of business. They were into garments. In the beginning, in fact, when uh, I started my career as in the sales, <laughs> and I saw a lot of Indian companies, you know, and then uh, when I started working in a publishing firm, my boss was an Indian who was married to uh, the daughter of the Manila Times tycoon, you know. So I don't know these days whether they're still there, but I am glad you mentioned about the five six because it's part of our culture. It's something that even probably no more Indian uh, expats coming to the Philippines, five, six is so intrinsic into our culture. When you say five, six, 
it's the informal money lending, you know, and and uh, which is easy, which probably was uh, uh, akin to uh, uh, the uh, what you call micro lending of of uh, who is that Bangladeshi, yeah, who who, who did into micro lending. You know, because it's easy. It's easy to borrow money, but uh, uh, you know, every day they're there. They 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 get back uh, what they're supposed to be repaid. So that that is something uh, that's uh, already been. Uh, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, that's all that I want to to say. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much for the comment. That was that was Consul General Maria Lourdes Salcedo. Maria, thank you so much yeah. uh, for your question. And Gilbert, would you like to to respond? Uh, yes, um, actually, yeah. Um, the um, it is true that the Filipinos have been very much um, influenced by the you know Indian civilization. Uh, I just uh, couldn't mention it anymore because I did have too much time. Uh, although that is uh, of course a very important. Um, thing to mention as well that uh, that you know my research is also um, sort of an extension of that because um, you know uh, the Filipinos and the Indians uh, the relations have have been around for centuries even before the colonial times in the Philippines. Um, as for the uh, scholars who are doing Indian studies, um, you mentioned Dr. Francisco, who actually is one of the influences of why I got into Indian studies as an academic. Uh, field, um, although he did Indology, which deals with uh, like ancient Indian literature and culture more. Um, the other things, uh, the other uh, scholar, Dr. Pasricha, who was also a student of uh, Dr. Um, Juan Francisco, uh, she also did more of literary work. However, the scholars that I had to look at when it comes to uh, the Indians in the Philippines would be more uh, would, would be other scholars such as uh, Dr. Ajit Rai, the late uh, Dr. Ajit Rai's works, uh, since he did uh, a lot of extensive studies about the Indians in the Philippines, although his data, um, while very helpful, they're very dated already. So this is one of the big contributions of my study, which is to update the Indian, uh, the understanding of Indian studies and the Indian community in the Philippines, and to see how uh, how they have grown and how they have prospered uh, throughout the years, despite all the challenges that they have uh, encountered. Thank you, Gilbert. Thank you. Thank, uh, thank you very much, Gilbert. And we have we are receiving questions from the from the audience, uh, you know, showcasing the interest in your in your research. I'll go with the Q and A section, and then with the ones in the chat. Uh, Ebony Watts um, asks. Does the Philippines curriculum include any Indian material such as history or language or any attempts at all to cater to the portion of uh, Indian students? And I guess that question is also more broadly related to, to what degree um, there is any knowledge whatsoever being discussed in, in Filipino education about, uh, about Indians. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. That's a very interesting question. And unfortunately, um, I feel that the in, uh, education system in the Philippines is very much colonial. Um, it's it's a very Western um, in the sense to the point that actually many Filipinos do not know uh, what uh, 
our, our very great consul general mentioned a while ago that, you know, the Philippines has a lot of influences from India. Not many Filipinos know that, even the highly educated ones. Um, because I keep telling people that throughout the years and I keep surprising people. So no, there's not a lot of material about, um, you know, the, the Indians in the Philippines and what they're doing. And I think that um, personally, I, I wouldn't go too much into it because that's a different issue altogether. But I personally, well, this is a personal mission of mine, which is to expand the knowledge of what Filipinos know about India and the Indians and um, how much of their culture is actually influenced by India. And which is why they should treat Indians better, um, which is weird because I'm neither ethnically Filipino nor Indian because I'm pure Chinese by blood, but I am third generation born and raised in the Philippines and I am a Filipino citizen. So I am as Filipino as I am Chinese. So uh, a lot of things to unpack there, but that's my short version, the short version of my answer. Thank you so much, uh, Gilbert. And we'll continue with the questions. Um, Chas, in particular, has a couple of questions. And our first, um, um, the first question is common. Thank you for your very insightful research, Gilbert. It has been an eye-opener, and I have to agree with him. Uh, how do second, third, or fourth generational Indians presently living in the Philippines see themselves in this day and age in terms of belonging? And I actually think that's a very interesting question. It speaks to the variation in terms of belonging that we tend to um, that tends to happen as uh, different generations stay in a particular country, and to what degree that's happening with Filipinos. I think that you began mentioning to some degree, uh, talking a little bit about that question. So. Um, any thoughts? Yeah. Um, so in terms of generational, this is actually interesting also because um, in the beginning, or maybe if you ask me this question, maybe in the 90s or early 2000s, my answer will be different from my answer today. Because back then, uh, there was a time when uh, the succeeding generations wouldn't see themselves very Indian and they even would try to go away from the Indian society or the Indian community because of all these um, stereotypes or negative experiences that we have in the Philippines. So that is actually uh, written in some uh, academic uh, journals and some books about the Indians in the Philippines as well. So you have some of their participants saying that I there are times when I don't want to be Indian anymore or why did why was I born Indian? You know, you have things like that. Um, however, um, because um, in the late 2000s, you, you have a surge of um, Indian diplomatic events. You have more, um, what you call this, more Indian cultural groups that are being formed. You have more expatriates coming to the Philippines for economic reasons. And these um, allowed a lot of the local Indians to be more connected with their culture. And of course, with the ease of traveling as well and with the internet, um, it was easier for them to learn about their culture and their heritage. And, you know, I have, I personally have participants saying that they themselves identify as Indian. They're proud to be Indian, but their sons or daughters are prouder to be Indian than they are because, for example, they don't speak the language, but their children do. Because there was a time, well, in the Philippines, there are no Indian language classes available. Um, so it was hard for the local Indian community to 
like learn the language unless their parents taught them. But um, you have younger generations of Indians, like third or fourth generation, who are more Indian or more patriotic, so to speak. But at the same time, they feel at ease being in the Philippines. So it's easier for them to navigate between uh, the Indian and the Philippine communities or societies because of uh, their global experiences or their transnational experiences. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Gilbert. That's that's actually fascinating. Um, and we have uh, more questions and some of the questions coming directly from the, in the chat box. And another question from, from Chas. Um, as a nomad, non-Filipino who lived in Makati for a couple of years while completing my high school, I noticed the disparity in stereotyping between someone like myself who emulated my Arab features compared to my Indian friends. I found it interesting considering it was a minority passing judgment on another, but it was but it was evident that it was uh, a lack of awareness and a lack of education to some degree. Uh, I, on the other hand, was treated like royalty, but I found quite surprising. And this, this comment uh, forward slash question, I think, speaks directly to a key theme in your research, which is stereotyping. Yes. And yeah, there is a, 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 quite a bit to talk about stereotyping. And um, please take it away. What do you, um, any thoughts on the, on the comment? Yes, um, I think the, okay, let me, let me go through the comment again. It was quiet. Okay. Yeah, um, no, of course. Yes. Um, Yes, that is quite interesting because some Filipinos know that Indians have a lot of money or at least Indian looking people have a lot of money. So they try to treat them as royalty, especially in a very posh city like Makati. You might be treated in that way because they know that, oh, you're probably, uh, and you know how Philippines are very hospitable, you know, they they try to give the best to uh, foreigners, um, you know, to, to, to show them the best of the Philippines. Um, and in some cases, they do that because they know that you have money. And that is um, also coming from the experience of my participants. Um, but on the other hand, depending on the upbringing, I guess, of some Filipinos, they would uh, do negative things to Indians because of uh, the differences, like the cultural or the physical differences. So I think the experiences would depend on the kind of Filipino that you're dealing with, how exposed are they to other cultures? And the second is um, probably which, um, I guess, which uh, area you are navigating in or you are staying in um, because uh, different, uh, what do you call this? Different places have different experiences with foreigners. So you have that uh, richness as well in the data coming from all those experiences. Um, no, thank you, thank you very much, and and yeah, that's and that's definitely uh, fascinating, and I and it touches that you know there are so many different papers or articles that could emerge of, of these uh, from this research, and I find it very exciting. And and one such area that is is very interesting, talking about stereotyping, is the stereotyping about about money lenders, which is uh, again a stereotype that has many manifestations, ramifications historically, many in many contexts quite frequently with very you know, strong negative connotations, unfortunately. Um, Sarjit, for instance, asks, uh, the Sindhis do, do big money business and Punjabis uh, small money lending. No one can beat the Sindhis who are, are known, quote unquote, 
as the, the brown juice in, in, in from a point of view of the of commercial uh lending but i am surprised that punjabis don't do sme business what are the educational skills of this of these punjabis i imagine you know, this question of course uh refers to the the variation of the uh, of the stereotyping on, on money lending and very interesting topic what would you like to tell us uh, about that yeah uh, thank you so much for that question dr surjit and nice to see you here again so uh, dr surjit and i have been acquainted before um yeah so uh, these you would be surprised actually the punjabis well the earliest money lenders in the philippines they're the they're poor and uneducated which is why they had to make do with what they know um, and without necessarily the formal papers i'm talking about maybe 1940s 1950s to maybe 1960s uh punjabi migrants in the philippines but money lenders today you would be surprised that they have uh like degree educational degrees they are college graduates some of them are even did you know mbas or even um other masters degrees but um so i i was surprised to know this but i asked so why did you engage in money lending when you know the stereotype is this kind of occupation is being done by those who are uneducated, you know, because it's actually not legal. Um, but they said that it's actually, um, yes, we know it's illegal, but we do it because it is practical. It is easy to do. Um, I don't need a very big capital and money moves very fast. So it is for economic reasons that even though they are educated, you know, in various fields, some of them, uh, I, I I talked to people who were related to people who graduated from a Master of Arts in Social Work, uh, others who did a, a, B, a Bachelor of Science in Agriculture or things like that. But they came to the Philippines and did money lending anyway. And they, um, you know, the thing is, even within the Indian community, these money lenders are ostracized sometimes because of the internal stereotype that, oh, we don't associate with them because they are... Uh, uneducated, you know, they don't like to do things properly. Unlike us, that we have a, a legit business um, with all the paperwork that we had to do because we want to show the Filipinos that um, we don't want to do things uh, un- like under the table, you know, uh, we ha- we want to do things legally. So there, there's that internal, um, uh, what do you call this, internal tension going on. However, these money lenders actually are not, necessarily poor as uh, what the stereotype dictates. A lot of these moneylenders are very rich. Uh, They live um, side by side with uh, the other Indians who do the legal businesses with the paperwork. Um, However, that stereotype persists today um, because they feel that um, the the Punjabi moneylenders are quote-unquote eyesores. And that is actually a word that was used by one of my participants. They are eyesores because of, uh, you know, they, they're uh, they're not giving a good image of Indians. But for the Filipinos, it's probably a different experience, and they're very thankful of these um, Punjabi moneylenders. But yeah, these Punjabi moneylenders are highly educated. Many of them are highly educated uh, when they, when uh, at least when they came to the Philippines, or at least that's what they told me. That's that's again another interesting angle uh, of your research. And uh, one final question uh, coming from from Maria. Um, now that Indians we find more, uh, now that we find more Indians in Australia, Canada, US, and UK nowadays, 
uh, and are more bec uh, becoming more cosmopolitan and accepted in developed countries, do you foresee a change in stereotyping and even, and even assimilation of India, of India's two host countries, and I imagine uh, to the Philippines in the case of your uh, research? Okay. Um, on one hand, I, I have seen some degree of assimilation because a lot of Indians do identify as Filipinos as they are Indians. So there is some degree of assimilation happening, but uh, I do foresee some change in the, actually even in the near future, um, at the very least in the makeup of the Indian community in the Philippines, because um, a lot of expats who have come to the Philippines actually enjoy being in the Philippines. And because now um, the immigration honors what they call, or at least they have offered um, a, a way to stay in the Philippines longer, which is the retirement visa or the SRRV. Um, it allows more expats to stay in the Philippines uh, forever, retain their original citizenship, but um, because they are staying in the Philippines forever, they invest their money, uh, foreign currency in the Philippines. So it's a win-win for, uh, win -win for both sides. So... Um, I could see more diversity in the Indian community in the Philippines in the coming years. I have some participants who are actually considering to stay in the Philippines forever. Um, but at the same time, um, the makeup of the Indians in the Philippines might also change because many Indians in the Philippines see the Philippines as a temporary uh, host country, so to speak, um, because um, you know how migrants tend to rank countries based on how progressive they think countries are. So the top of the list would be, you know, the US, Canada, Australia, and probably some countries in Europe like the United Kingdom. Um, so in the Philippines, a lot of Indians there are actually also considering of leaving the Philippines. Um, and even though they are in the Philippines for many generations now, uh, they still don't consider the Philippines as their permanent home because there is still that, um, maybe because of, of what citizenship they hold, maybe because of the economic uh, conditions of the Philippines or their personal economic conditions, they feel that uh, they should move to a different country. And for the Punjabis, um, for example, they a lot of them like to move to Canada because it's easier to move there or maybe they have family uh, and friends in Canada that are inviting them to go there. So um, some of my Punjabi participants are actually thinking of going to Canada and leaving the Philippines. So uh, there's a lot of that movement going on um, to, to, to summarize. Well, uh, and that was the last uh, question, uh, Gilbert. I look forward to a thesis. Uh, Gilbert's, Gilbert's research is part of a, of a thesis that he's been writing in the context of the joint PhD program between La Trobe University and Ateneo de Manila uh, University. Uh, it's a fantastic project, Gilbert. I look forward to the thesis and hopefully to the book or to the articles that emerge from this project. I mean, there, there's, there's so much to, to investigate and you clearly have develop a very strong foundation for the for what it promises to be a very fruitful research agenda in the future. And once again, I would like to thank you for uh, speaking to us today and thanking you, of course, on behalf of the audience for joining us in the in the conversation. And this webinar has been recorded. If you've registered for the event, you'll be emailed the appropriate links when they are ready. 
please follow us on Twitter at Path Latrobe, that is P-A-F uh, Latrobe and uh, at Latrobe Asia, or join our mailing list to find more details about our online events and activities. And Gilbert, I look forward to chatting with you as well. I have a bunch of questions here before you head back to, to Manila. It's been a pleasure to having you here. And thank, thank you. you. Thank you, everyone.